You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Willie. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Chili Willie, aka the icing on the cake. Welcome to the last Music Legends of 2018. It's been a short and sweet year, and I don't want it to go. But at the same time, I'm excited for 2019 to come around. Now, I wanted to finish off this year with a bang. And this is gonna be two bangs, because this episode is two parts. So after you listen to this episode, make sure you check out part two to continue the story. Anyway, for the last episode of Music Legends for 2018, I wanted to do someone who has truly earned the title of one and only. But statistically speaking, he's actually one of about 507. And that's just in the US. I mean, Michael is such a popular name. There's over 200,000 of them, just in the US. It's kind of beautifully average, if you think about it. And Jackson, I mean, it may be easily forgettable, but it was one of the most popular boys' names in 2017. Jackson comes from Scottish heritage. In Scottish, the name Jackson means God has been gracious or has shown favor. And in this case, that may be completely true because when Michael and Jackson are put together, they become legendary. There may be 507 Michael Jacksons, but only one of them has defined the contours of the 20th century. In other words, he gave us all the thrill of a lifetime. It was a sweltering day in August. Just 25 minutes outside Chicago lie a bustling new industrial city called Gary. Somewhere within that city, a music legend was born. But let's flash back five years before that to find that music legend's father, Joseph Jackson. He was a professional boxer and a musician who played guitar for a local blues group. He was living out his dreams until he met the woman of his dreams. He ended up starting a family with her. And it was quite a huge family. They had 10 kids together. So Joseph had to quit boxing and playing music to work full time as a steel worker. The times were changing fast for him. Joseph regretted leaving behind his career as a musician. He heard musical reminders that would haunt him every day throughout his own small home. He lived in a two bedroom shack with his wife and his 10 kids. Whether these musical reminders were his wife playing clarinet or one of his 10 kids singing, it began to become very clear that music ran strong in the family. When Joseph saw the raw potential of his children, his brain smoldered into action. His musical ambitions may have died, but something else was born. And at that moment, Joseph decided to do whatever it took to make a success of his children. Old Daddy Jackson made a band out of his kids, at least the ones that he thought were musically talented. Their casual singing around the house became detailed and in-depth as they practiced every day for at least four hours. Joseph sat meticulously watching them with a belt in his hand, waiting to whip them if even one note was off. He was trying to create musical perfection, but he hadn't yet realized that there was a musical machine right in front of his eyes. Dancing, dancing, dancing. She's a dancing machine. 
Joseph was becoming less of a father and more of a manager. And to say he was a strict manager would be an understatement. Nonetheless, he molded his family band into something way bigger than he initially thought. His youngest son, Michael, just wanted to feel like part of the family. But when he joined the band at the age of five, Michael's amazing talent began to show itself. His dancing and stage presence alone caused him to become the focus of the group. His older brother, Jackie, told Jerry Hershey in Rolling Stone, quote, It was sort of frightening. He was so young. I don't know where he got it. He just knew, unquote. And that's what made Michael such a special kid. Although he didn't have the childhood of a regular kid, he was conscious of everything that was going on around him. It was obvious that uh, Joe, the father, had instilled in them the necessity to be visually as well as musically appealing. And of course, those giant afros helped. And the colorful shirts and the bell-bottom trousers, they were the real deal. And they were instantly imitated across the culture. The Jacksons' fame and popularity soon began to spread, and so did their afros. The star singer Diana Ross became associated with the boys during a concert in their hometown. She was headlining the show that night, and she just happened to get to the venue a little bit early. She heard this opening riff, full of energy, that grabbed her attention like nothing that she'd ever felt before. But when she heard Michael's first lyric, she was absolutely astonished. Diana Ross helped the young Jackson brothers by personally talking to the director of Motown Records. And of course, after hearing them, the director was astonished as well. He immediately signed them and took control of their career. But their controlling father wasn't too happy about that. Joseph started out with a true passion to make his children successful and a strict attitude to do whatever was necessary to make that happen. But that quickly turned into something that was much darker when he began to lose control. The Jackson brothers were sitting in their living room watching television. They all sat silent, just watching and listening in awe. One of them flicked through the channels. No matter what they were watching, they were happy. Happy to be away from the fame that their father had given them. Happy to forget about it all and just watch some cartoons like a normal kid. But just as the euphoria was starting to set in, they heard the sound of their father's car pulling into the driveway. His keys jingled just outside the door, and the kids quivered inside from fear as to what would happen next. His key turned and the door squeaked open. What the hell are you big-nosed idiots doing? If you want to become real musicians, you gotta work. And if you ain't working, you're dying. The band spent the rest of the night working, or some sort of demented version of work. After practicing their set for six hours, they performed at a strip club while their father was, well, off the clock. Sadly, the Jacksons were all too familiar with nights like that. And the real kicker is, after Motown Records found them, they were already getting big shows. They didn't have to perform at local greasy strip clubs. 
their controlling father dragged them along through physical and emotional abuse. But the brothers, thankfully, helped each other through it, one song at a time. By 1970, the group known as the Jackson 5 was topping the charts and surfing the wave of popularity. People couldn't get enough of the Jackson 5, so much that a Jackson 5 cartoon series was created and action figures were made of the band. But the director of Motown Records quickly recognized specifically Michael's appeal and had a great idea, just a little bit before its time. He started releasing albums featuring only Michael, but none of them really sold better than the Jackson 5. At least, that was until 1978. So many things were going on around Michael, but some things he had a deeper interest in than others. Now 20 years old, Michael walked into the hectic set of The Wiz, an African-American version of The Wizard of Oz. He waltzed in the room with a swagger that made everyone turn and look. The director yelled the words that he had yelled so many times before. And cut. Diana Ross was on the set, and when she saw Michael, she ran to her young protege and gave him a big hug. A rush of excitement tickled Michael as he squeezed the star who had jump-started his career. But he heard his father's voice in the back of his mind. You gotta work, and if you ain't working, you're dying. He snapped out of his joy and realized that he was on this movie set to do a job. In fact, he had a role in the movie. Michael was playing the scarecrow. So he did his job and got to acting. And while the film ended up being a box office failure, Michael sung one of the few hits that came from it. It was all in a day's work for Michael as he was leaving the film set that day. But on that very day, he noticed someone that he hadn't seen before. Well, at least someone he hadn't seen in a very long time. Michael stopped in his tracks and hid in plain sight among the chaos of the set. He looked at this man from across the room, searching deep within his memory bank for where he'd seen him before. But it was too late. The man was approaching fast. Before he knew it, he was in front of Michael. He lifted his hand to shake with a big smile, and as soon as he saw his face up close, he knew exactly who it was, but still not how he knew him. The man stood in front of Michael and introduced himself. Hey, I'm Quincy Jones. You can call me Q. Last time I saw you was at Sammy Davis Jr.'s house, and you were only like 12 years old. You remember that? Suddenly, the memories had all come rushing back to Michael. Eight years ago, just after the Jackson 5 had been signed to Motown Records, Quincy Jones had just recovered from his second surgery after two brain aneurysms. He had survived after the doctors said his chances of survival would only be one in a hundred. Quincy was now on a mission to not only continue to make great music, but to make a great change. Making music for movies had always been something that Quincy wanted to pursue, so he scheduled a meeting with his friend, a man who was a star in movies and music. The man they called Mr. Show Business, Sammy Davis Jr. The day of that meeting, Sammy asked Quincy to sit in on another meeting he had with a successful new young band called the Jackson Five. 
That was the day that Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones first met. Eight years later, as he stood there, he finally remembered their history. The two music legends laughed and talked through the chaos of filming. It turned out that Quincy Jones had been producing and arranging the entire score for the film. Michael had learned so many things about music and life just within that brief conversation. Quincy had watched Michael's career bloom, and within both of their souls, they knew it was the perfect time to join forces and create something truly special. So much of Michael's life thus far has been tuning out all the chaos that surrounds him and tuning in to what really matters. And what mattered to Michael, of course, was the music. Michael moved to New York after filming The Wiz. He was in the middle of recording his debut solo album with his new friend and mentor Quincy Jones. Michael had to be at the studio in the morning for a recording session, but tonight, he was at a different kind of studio. The Studio 54 nightclub. He would go to that nightclub almost every night to surround himself and be inspired by new and unique styles of music. At that very nightclub, he was exposed to early forms of hip-hop. And disco. Influencing tracks such as Working Day and Night. And Michael really was working day and night. He had been for his whole life. But at certain times, as we all do, he let his guard down. As he stood in the nightclub, he suddenly stopped dancing. The chaos that surrounded him became clearer and closer. He could hear everything and everyone at the same time. He could feel his sweat drip off his skin. On the inside, he felt vulnerable and terrified like a small child. In his panic, he busted out of the club and onto the chilly New York street. When he got back to his apartment, he laid in his bed with his eyes wide open, chaos echoing through his mind. But the next morning, he was already back in action and packed full of energy, at least on the outside. On the inside, he was fragile and irritated. Within the next year, Michael and Quincy Jones created what would become Michael's fifth solo album, Off the Wall. If it wasn't for this album, people would have continued to expect the bubblegum pop that he had made when he was a kid. Instead, with Off the Wall, he created something much more complex. Legend has it that when Michael's mom heard the title for the song Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, she was very concerned because, well, it could be interpreted sexually. But Michael wasn't about that bubblegum life anymore. He wanted to leave the name of the song open-ended and let people think what they wanted about the title. Off the Wall was the first solo album to ever generate four of the top five hits in the United States. The album reached number three on the Billboard 200 and eventually sold 20 million copies worldwide. Michael had grown up popular throughout the United States, 
But now, his impact was beginning to spread all over the world. It was becoming much bigger than just music. At the time, the music industry was dominated by white men. In some aspects, it still is. But in 1980, it wasn't just about who listened to a certain artist's music, but who watched it. MTV originally aired music videos that were guided by TV personalities, known as video jockeys, or VJs. If you watched an hour of MTV in 1980, you would start to notice that even the African-American heavy hitters of the time, like Prince, Whitney Houston, or even Michael Jackson, were nowhere to be found. At least, that was until Michael himself took notice. He made it his absolute goal to produce such great music videos that MTV couldn't refuse to play them. For Michael, that was easy. And it became a pivotal moment for his career and the music industry. The music video for Don't Stop Till You Get Enough featured only Michael, just in different backdrops, dancing in a black suit. Now that song became such a big hit that if MTV didn't play it, they would lose their viewers. So they started playing it, and more than any other video. I mean, this video was everywhere. It went just about as viral as it could go in 1980. Michael sat on the top floor of a building in an executive office filled with cigarette smoke. He heard the distant arguing of his manager and the CEO of MTV. But Michael fell into an almost hypnotic state watching the city streets so far down. The two executives were fighting over how much money Michael should get from every time the video was played. The CEO of MTV grabbed a nearby remote control and pointed it directly at a nearby television. Looking at Michael's manager, he squeezed the button as the television slowly glowed on to show Michael's music video. It was the first time Michael had seen his own video after making it. For a split second, he felt proud. Then, he heard his father's intruding voice in his head. You gotta work, and if you ain't working, you're dying. He began to feel vulnerable and small, even somewhat ashamed like a child. Michael's flesh tingled. I need to do better, he thought to himself as his mind filled with angst. Michael. Michael. Both the executives were looking at his plastered on smile. Welcome back to reality, said the CEO. But little did he know that that statement was more than right. Took me by surprise. I can't help but see you. Running often through my mind. Two months later, Michael was practicing dancing for an upcoming tour. Practicing the only way he knew how, the only way he ever had, non-stop. Ever since his panic attack in his manager's office, he started trying out new moves, mixing his natural creativity with popular moves to push his body to the limit. Ultimately, that created some of his most iconic moves of all time, like the moonwalk. But one day, he pushed his body too far he fell off the stage and badly broke his nose. This accident led to his second operation reconstructing and correcting his nose. However, it wasn't a complete success. 
After he recovered, he complained of breathing difficulties throughout the rest of his career. But that didn't stop him. In fact, he was only getting started. A few years later, after easing back into the music industry, doing small writing jobs, and singing for bands like Queen and the Rolling Stones, Michael was ready to burst with energy and passion for music, and finally making his own albums again. He joined forces with Quincy Jones once again to start something great. Michael started working on what would become the number one best-selling album of all time. But what happened behind the scenes during the making of what Rolling Stone calls the 20th best album of all time? Find out just after this short break. So the other day I happened to see the waste management people. I mean, they were just doing what they do. You know, picking up all the stuff I had recycled. But when I looked at the guy in that truck, we had a real moment of awkward eye contact. He made a face at me as if to say, what are you looking at, buddy? And I made a face at him as if to say, I appreciate you, bro. I mean, the earth is pretty cool, right? Therefore, recycling is cool. But don't you ever wonder what happens to all of the stuff after you recycle it? Well, Vanier makes it into useful and beautiful works of art. Check out their Etsy page in the show notes or look up Vanier. That's V-A-G-N-E. You'll find lamps with unique stone designs and much, much more. And they're all handmade and perfect to keep your home and this planet looking good. What happened behind the scenes as Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson were making one of the best albums of all time? Well, the studio was a madhouse as Quincy Jones was scrambling the horn section to make last-minute changes. Michael was having non-stop ideas, even though the album was essentially finished. He was on a creative high, and not just mixing different cultures of sound and styles of music. He was adding things that didn't necessarily go together, like the spoken word poem at the end of Thriller. And whosoever shall be found without the soul for getting down must stand and face the hounds of hell inside a corpse's shell. Even the horror elements mixed with pop in general. It didn't really go together, but somehow it worked. Kind of like Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson's relationship. Michael wasn't like any other musician Quincy had worked with, and he's worked with a lot. Michael had so many ideas, but Quincy had to filter out the good ideas from the bad ideas. Once upon a time, Michael had told Quincy to take out the string line at the beginning of Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Quincy said, hell no, that's one of the strongest parts in the song. And, well, I guess they never did end up taking it out. But sometimes Quincy let Michael run wild with his ideas, and as any good producer should. Michael was standing in the vocal booth with his headphones only covering one ear. He hadn't eaten in hours, but he wasn't even hungry. He was running on pure life. They'd been recording the same song all day, but one of these was going to be the perfect take, and he wasn't going to stop until he knew which one it was. You ready, Michael? Sure am. Roll it. Then, for a split moment, 
Silence spilled across the vocal booth until suddenly... So they came into the outway. It was Sunday. What a black day. Matamari's hesitation, sounding heartbeats, intimidations. Annie, are you okay? So, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? Annie, are you okay? Quincy Jones kept the tape rolling as he had a realization. They had been recording the same song all day just to get a vocal take where Michael wasn't moving around so much. When Michael sang, he was dancing and moving further and closer to the mic, making a sound a little different and weird each time they recorded it. And still, Michael didn't stop dancing. And Quincy, this time, he didn't stop recording. And that energy brings a beautiful color and life to the song. A song that's built with such a strong bass and other amazing elements all built around it. It's amazing to me how imperfections are quite literally what makes us perfectly human. And although at times Michael Jackson can seem like he was a superhuman, well, he's still a human. But he was a great artist. And artists aren't always normal. In fact, some of our greatest artists are very eccentric and unique. Michael Jackson was one of those artists. He lived his life in an unusual way until his unusual life started controlling him. So what was it that took control of Michael's life? Find out on part two of this Music Legends miniseries. <laughs>